glorious morning. I've been anticipating this day for a while. Um, and I'm just so glad that you made it your business, made it your priority to come to God's house um, to worship in what our Christian faith does annually. We come together specifically once a year to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen? And it's, it's a good tradition. It's a good uh, practice. But what, what we do once a year today, the early Christians did weekly. And so for us, we get our you know, our, our Easter's best dress on, right? Like, even me, look at me. Come on. Like, <laughs> I, I, I wore, I, I've worn a suit two times this year for Pastor Daniel's wedding. He's worn a suit only two times this year also for his wedding and for today. Now, the only reason why I bring that up is I, I do not ever want anyone coming here for the first time and walking in on Easter Sunday seeing, <gasps> That guy, that handsome guy who hosted, he wore a suit. And now the second handsome guy, he wore a suit. And so now I have to go get a suit to be part of this church. That's the last thing I want anyone to think. It's the last thing that we want, that our dress code defines our culture of our church. And you know, I just wanted to wear a suit today. That's it. And so what happens to us is that we, 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 we tend to have these traditions. And it's a good tradition to do this every year. But the basis of the Christian faith and the early believers, every time they came together, their worship and their messages all surrounded around the resurrection of Jesus. And while it's a good tradition to have every year, it's a bad habit if we only do it every year. And so while we worship today in celebration of Resurrection Sunday, my prayer is that when we come together on Thursday, when we come together in prayer, when we come together next week for Sunday, that we do not think that resurrection has ended. We're actually every day living in the resurrection of Jesus. And so I'm so glad we're celebrating it today. But here's one more thing before we begin. You can celebrate resurrection without truly understanding resurrection. And so my heart and my prayer today is that if we go into the scriptures that, that, that teach us about resurrection, as Pastor Daniel said, resurrection came out of this Christian uh, belief, this, this, this Christian gospel is their resurrection comes from. We are a, a, a faith that is holding on to this message of resurrection. But what does it mean? What does it mean? What's the purpose if we're singing songs that have resurrection in them and we don't understand what the resurrection of Jesus was for? Amen? And so I promise you that the resurrection of Jesus was not God's final act so that all of humanity could clap their hands and be like, wow, that was powerful. 
It wasn't God's greatest stunt. It wasn't God's, just his greatest performance. As a matter of fact, what resurrection was intended, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the intent of his resurrection was to make an announcement and to make a commencement of greater things to come that you and I live in and still wait for. Amen? Amen. So God bless you. Happy Easter. I'm not mad at Easter. I'm not mad at us being here today. I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm excited. I'm thrilled. You may be seated at this time. Ah, we've been, for the past several weeks, here at the Dwelling Place Church, uh, been speaking on this theme called Temple, where heaven and earth meet. Amen? And in this message, we're seeing how the plan in the heart of God has not been for us to escape earth and hopefully one day float to heaven. But by looking at what the Bible is saying, the scriptures are showing and telling this message that the heart of God, his plan, is for there to be a unification of heaven and earth. Amen? And so today, even though as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday and maybe uh, the graphic looks different, Today is the conclusion of our temple series, amen? And it's okay if you haven't been here. Maybe you're just passing by. Uh, maybe you're on vacation and you're in Florida. Uh, you come from out of state and you're looking, you came looking for a place to worship. By you not being here the previous weeks, you're not going to miss. You're not, not going to miss what God has for us today. And so, uh, once again, thank you for being here. My name is Ezekiel Velez, and I have the honor and the privilege alongside with my beautiful wife, if you could just stand up, our first lady. <laughs> pastor Tanya. Yeah, she is a pastor here at the Dwelling Place Church. <laughs> uh, thank God for her and all the other pastors here today, Pastor Lynn, uh, Pastor Daniel, Pastor Michael, and Sarai, and all the leaders. We thank God for you, all the volunteers, the worship team. Uh, people behind the scenes who came early to prepare for us to be here. This is a beautiful thing, people. This is a beautiful thing where we're here today. This is not a show. This is not a performance. We're not giving popcorn, so you can... If it was a show, we probably would have handed out popcorn so you could sit back and watch, and then you could rate the show at the end. But this is not a show just because there's lights and there's this platform and there's a stage. This is a community. This is a family. And as Pastor Daniel mentioned, it was beautifully demonstrated this past Good Friday where we broke bread and we, we, we shared in the communion of the Lord, honoring the death of our Savior, his blood that was shed for us so that we could enter into a new covenant with him. We partook of the, the, the bread symbolizing his body, which was given for us. And then we're, because of the sacrifice, right, because of Jesus being the true reality of the Passover lamb. He's the, he is the lamb that was slain. We get to take part in our relationship with God. That's why we're here. And so, yes, it is special. It is special because it's, it's the cross that preps us for the resurrection. There can be no resurrection, right, if there is no death first. And so Jesus would come as the messianic king. Jesus did not fall out of heaven and just you know, start his own message, but Jesus is the Messiah who, has, who revealed himself 
to the Jewish people. He is Yahweh. That's his revealed name to them. And, and they awaited for a Messiah. They awaited for a Savior who was going to restore them, bring liberation to them, bring healing, uh, uh, make all things new. These are what we hear in the voice of the prophets. And they were waiting for him. They were waiting for him. And so God saw fit in his own divine plan that for him to come, to come as a human being, Emmanuel, God with us, and he was born of a virgin, and he took on human likeness. He humbled himself all the way to the point, the death of the cross. And why is that important? It's so important that before we talk about resurrection and celebrate, and some of us miss it, I know I have missed it, the earlier years of my life where I was just celebrating, wow, that's pretty spectacular. <laughs> a man who died rose himself from the grave, now that's, now that's power. And being wowed by the power, but never coming into an understanding of the meaning and the significance. And so first we have to understand that Jesus going to the cross and the shedding of his blood was for the remission, the removal, to make us clean again. And so why did he go to a cross and die? Because the Bible teaches us that the cost, the price, the wage of sin is death. And so I have been found guilty. My beautiful wife has been found guilty. Our children will, you know, are born and they're beautiful and they're pure, but they come into a world that is corrupt. And then they'll come to no sin and then they will be found guilty. And the story continues. We all have been found guilty. And so sin must be punished. And so what Christ did on that cross was he took your sin. He took my sin. And we experience the grace of God because God now is not punishing us for that sin, for being found guilty. What did he do? He punished his son. He punished his son. On that cross, he bore our iniquities. And so now we have peace with God because of what he did. How great is that? I know we hear it all the time and we're like, yeah, 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 yeah I know that story. But could you imagine walking with a friend and then something tragic happens and a bullet flies and then your friend steps in front of it and they take that for you? How would you live? What gratitude you would live with? How would you honor such a person who just took, where now you have life because of what they gave? That would be significant. That would be profound. And so what did Jesus do? He took the penalty for our sin. And so every day that we wake up, we're waking up in this beautiful grace. And so this is why we cannot wait for Good Friday. We cannot wait to Resurrection Sunday to celebrate what Christ did. We exist and we have peace with God every day that we wake up because of this great act. Selfless. But not only would he just die and pay for our sins... And now you and I here on earth get to, you know, I have peace. I, my conscience is clear because, you know, Christ paid for my sin. And all I have to do is acknowledge that. And, 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 and yes, it's great. We have peace with God. You don't have to live in shame. You do not have to live in guilt. You do not have to condemn yourself. Because the scriptures teach us that when we come to Christ, we're a new creation. And not only is our sin removed, but God wants to heal us in every kind of way so that emotionally, we're freed from the guilt of sin itself. And so this is beautiful. 
this is great. We have peace with God now. But what God did through resurrection is so much more than what we see now. And so today as we go into the scriptures, I pray that you're going to leave here. We're going to leave here with a true understanding of why Jesus rose from the grave. As great as a wonder that it was, it's not, it was never meant to be the end. Amen? And so I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Some of you might be saying, that's the wrong passage, Pastor. We're in Resurrection Sunday. That's the wrong passage. We're gonna, we're, it's Resurrection Sunday. It's Easter. So you should be reading, you know, you should have told us to open up to Matthew chapter 28, right? And if I didn't tell you to open up to Matthew chapter 28, then I should have told you to open up to Mark chapter 16, right? And if I didn't say Mark chapter 16, then I should have said Luke 24, right? Or if not Luke 24, then I should have told you to open up to John 20. Why? Because those are all the passages about the resurrection of Jesus. So, Pastor, why are we in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, I invite you to go to Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, and you can put the full story of the resurrection, and when Jesus comes out, and there's angels, and I can imagine, you know, smoke coming out the tomb, and angels there glowing, and then the women are present, and we've said it like 10 times already, why do you seek the living among the dead? I invite you to go and read the story. But the reason why I don't want to go there is because most of us, that's all that we do. And for some of us, we probably, some of us probably woke up this morning and said, you know, it is Resurrection Sunday. I'm going to open up my Bible this morning. I'm going to start the day right. And I'm going to go to Matthew 28 or Mark 16 and so on. And it's good to do that. It's good to recall the, the, the story. But the resurrection of Jesus is not just for us to go, that was a great job. It's not God's last performance. And for most of us, that's all it is. Most of us are like, oh, it's Resurrection Sunday. You know, this is the day where we, where, where, we, where we shout and we praise about the guy who got out the tomb. And then the world's probably looking in like, oh, this is the day when those crazy Christians celebrate some guy who was dead and that he claims to have brought himself back to life. Good for him. And we can fall into that routine, Resurrection Sunday, clap, great job, God. And the world can be like, good for them. And then we finish Matthew 28 and we close it. We're like, Done. We close Mark 16, done. John 20, done. Wonderful. Moving along. What's the next theme, Pastor? Resurrection Sunday was not the end of all things. It was only the beginning. And so now we're going to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 20. Sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. All of the verses are going to be provided just behind me, above me. If you don't have your Bible, but I'll be reading from the New International Version. I'll read and then we'll go into some context, okay? It reads this, and this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a city, Corinth was a city in southern Greece, where Paul, you can read in the book of Acts, where he went and he preached the gospel. And, 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 and many people came to faith. There were some Jews living in Corinth, and they believed too. And the, just a lot of the Greeks there, the natives there, and they believed. And, and after receiving the message, they became, they became a church. And so here, 
uh, Paul is written this letter, 1 Corinthians, to them, and he's addressing things about their worship. He's encouraging them in their faith, and he's correcting issues that they're having. You think your church is the only church with issues? <laughs> no matter what church you go to, like, I'm not going to go there. That church has issues. I'm going to go to another church. I'm, I promise you, you're going to find an issue in that church too. And then for everyone who says, we want to be like the church of Acts that was full of the power of the Holy Spirit. They had the power of the Holy Spirit and they had their issues. Every church, even you see in the polling letters, he writes to the church of Ephesus, they got their issues. Church of Galatia, they got their issues. Church of Philippi, they got their issues. Everybody got issues. And so here he's actually addressing an issue that has to do with their understanding of resurrection. And so they're believers, and so they heard the gospel, and what was the gospel message? That Christ died, and then he rose. He died on behalf of our sin, but then he got up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 actually has the oldest Christian creed where the apostle Paul writes to them, and he says, and he appeared to more than 500 at once. This is the message that I received, and this is the message that I preached to you, and this is the message that you believed. And so the Corinthian church, they came to faith, understanding that Christ had died for their sins, a human being had died for their sins, Jesus, and then he rose again, that he, he got up out of the tomb. However, being in Corinth was predominantly a, a Greco-Roman understanding. And it, it permeated their philosophies, it permeate, permeated their culture, it permeated their spirituality. It was all intertwined. We live in a world today where we just separate all those things, right? We separate our politics, we separate our government, we separate our, our, our faith, and don't mix those up because once you do that, we got trouble. But in the ancient world, all of it all went together. And sure, there were some divisions of how that all worked, but in their mind, it was open conversation, open discussion. And so how they believed is also how they lived things out. And so when Paul goes to Corinth and he preaches, they believe in the message of Jesus, but they also, he has to work through renewing their mind about understanding truths that we now have because of Jesus. And so this was what was important. The, the Roman way of thinking, how they understood their interactions with the gods and how that worked throughout their, you know, how that became a reality, they believed that the human body, mortality, was purely evil. And the only way redemption could happen is that if there was an afterlife, the body stayed dead and only the spirit could be good. Okay? And so humanity is flawed, which is true. Humanity is corrupt, which is true. Mortality, human flesh, is weak. It decays, it dies, it gets sick. They saw the evil in humanity. And so for them, in their understanding, the only way that man could be free is that if he went on as a spirit only. And so if you go on to live with the gods, then you go on and you live like a god, your spirit goes on. And so this was their understanding. Now there's a problem and Paul knows that is because these Corinthians came to faith on this basis, that Jesus was a human being and he died. But when he resurrected, he did not resurrect as a spirit ghost being. He resurrected as a body. Now that will create conflict. Why? Because they believe that the body, the flesh was wicked. And so now you're going to see Paul address them 
so that he can reconcile a past understanding with a greater reality of truth because of the resurrection. And so they were getting together every first day of the week as well, the Corinthian church, celebrating what? The death and burial, right? But the resurrection of Jesus. But in their minds, they were thinking that the body was dead. So therefore, they're thinking of resurrection as only something spiritual. How many of us, to this day, and maybe even now, you think of resurrection as just something spiritual? You think of resurrection as something poetic? We're singing these songs. The dead will, I don't know the lyrics, but it says something like the dead will rise. Right? The last song just now. The dead will the, the dead will live again. And for some of us, we're like, wow, that's so beautiful, beautiful poetry. The dead will live again. So dead things in my life, you know, and, and, and that is true. But the resurrection of Jesus literally means resurrection. Let's read. Sorry. We're caught up. So this is Paul. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, and that's what they were preaching, that's the gospel message that they believed, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now does it make sense? Paul writing to the Corinthian church, you believed on the basis that Christ rose from the dead. How come some of you are still, they're holding on to their old understanding, their own philosophies, that they don't believe that there's actual resurrection of the body because it is corrupt. And so now he's going to try to help them. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then not even Christ. Like, if that is true, then Christ cannot have resurrected from the dead. But that's not what he believes. He started the chapter, go read on your own. He says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at once. We know he has resurrected. Verse 14, he goes, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Why would you believe this? I'm saying, why would you come to faith in the gospel message and only believe half of it? Or why would you receive a message about a man dying, resurrecting, but then hold on to the belief that the body cannot be raised from the dead. doesn't make sense. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, okay, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead were not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, those that have died physically. The Bible usually refers to those that have died as to fallen asleep. He goes, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, then they're lost. If there is no resurrection. And then he says this, look, if only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all mo people most to be pitied. Wow. Wow. If all of our hope, right, if our concept of Jesus, his death, and, and, and resurrection is just a, a poetic expression, if 
all of our faith has to do with being happy in this lifetime, oh, he says, we're, we're most pitiful before all people. Why is that important? Why is that important today? How does this speak to us today? Because I believe many of us just have this idea about that our faith and our belief in, 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 in Jesus and in the resurrection is all about just what happens in this lifetime. And Paul says that's, that's pitiful faith. To think that all of our hope about Christ is what's subject to this time right here. So what is he suggesting? That there is something so much more after death. Not just in this life. So we're so consumed by every moment of this lifetime. And even when we have faith, it's only about us having faith and belief about God being good right now. And then so most of my prayers are about God fixing everything right here and right now. And I'm only happy, I'm only satisfied in my faith when God is working on my behalf right now. You know what Paul says? That is pitiful. That all of your hope in Christ, if all of our life is just to have a hope of what Christ does right now, oh, of course Christ is involved right now. And he, and he knows that in their minds, that's it. Once you die, you die. The body's done. That's it. He's saying, no, there's so much more that we should have hope in. And then verse 20, he goes, but Christ has indeed, and now this is his, this is his message. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And look at, these, look at the language. The first fruits of those who, what, have fallen asleep. So Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And what he's saying is, he's just the first of those who have died. Okay? So Christ died and his body, his physical body rose again and he is just the first of everyone else that has died. So what does that mean? What happens when we die? In Christ, there is so much more life ahead. So death is not the end. It's actually only the beginning. Amen? And look at this. Paul's a monster. He's a beast. He goes, for since death came through what? A man. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all what? Die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, look at the lines, but then when he comes, those who belong to him. And so what is Paul concluding? Paul is concluding to the Corinthians that Christ rose from the dead but that is not the end where we just clap and say, great job, God, that's powerful. I love that you did that. But we celebrate because Christ rising is just the first of all of us who will rise to one day. So that means when we die, for all of those that belong to God, there will come a time 
when Jesus returns and we who were dead who believe in him will get up from the grave. Your body will come up out of the grave. We're not... For everyone to say, no, but I thought I was going to die and this body is just going to stay in the dirt and then my little spirit is going to float up and I'm going to go into the clouds in heaven. Where? Paul say, no, your, your spirit is not going to fly up to the heavens and your body is going to stay in the grave. He actually says when Christ returns. But I wanted to die and fly and go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible talks about, that we die and we float away to heaven. We're going to see... In conclusion here, that it's about Jesus returning, and he's coming with all of heaven with him. And all of heaven is going to come, and it's going to come into reality upon this beautiful earth that he will restore. And so you and I will be coming to life in this new heaven, in this new earth. Now that's a beautiful picture. That's so much more than what I thought. I thought I was just going to fly up, get on the cloud, and there's little baby angels with wings, and, you know, just, uh, you know, just worship around the throne of God all day. Clearly, there's worship in heaven, but is it possible that that is so shallow to what all heaven actually means? Amen? So my title is New Creation is Coming. New Creation is Coming. And um, when you look at the design... You might say, oh, it's Easter. Everyone does floral design for Easter, right? It's just, just, you know, it's Easter, so it's meant to feel spring and all this, right? So just beautiful, uh, uh, you know, flowers here. But this design is not to represent, you know, the theme of Easter. But it's for us to remember how we began this series about when we see the beautiful picture of where heaven and earth is united where? In the Garden of Eden. And so the garden becomes the first temple where heaven touches earth and God makes his dwelling on earth in the garden with the first creation, Adam and Eve. And so we know as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, they are exiled from the garden and our whole Bibles, as we're reading, and it's difficult and it's hard, and, 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 and I know I've been on the journey a long time, and I'm still on the journey, and there are things that I still do not understand, that I'm still trying to ask the Holy Spirit and, and trying to learn uh, what the Scriptures say and what they mean now for me and my lifetime, for you as a church. And I, as difficult as it is, I just invite you to press into that journey, but to maybe help you if you struggle as you read the Bible, know this, that the story, the narrative, the entire Bible uh, is about man who is exiled from that garden and he's cut off from the blessing and the eternal life of the, of the tree of life in the garden. In the garden is where he had life. In the garden is where God rested. In the garden is where there was a, a river of life and just a beautiful imagery of where the life source is in the garden. And God planted creation there, but he's cut off. And so the rest of the Bible is about God bringing man back into that sacred space. Okay? So this is what Eden was. It was a paradise. Eden means delightful. It's a place of, 
of a blessing and it's functioning. It's, it's not just pretty. When we read that God made something and he saw that it was good, it meant that it functioned. And from the days of creation, after he sees what he makes in day one, God said, he sees it, he said, and this is good. It's not just pretty. It is. It's not just beautiful. It is. But more than it being pretty to the eyes, it functions. It works. And then he does a day two, and he does stuff very specific on day two. But when he looks at it, he sees day two on top of day one, and then he said, this is still good. And so components of day two are working, but they're also working together with the components of day one. And then he does a day three, and then things happen there, and God says, and this is good. And so day three is functioning as a unit by itself, but it's also working in relation to day two and day one, and so on and so forth. That when he's done with man on the final, uh, when he's done with, with, with man on the sixth day, God says, oh, and this is very good. It's very good. Why? Because now God has an image of himself on earth who's able to take the good functioning world that he created and man can now care for it, tend it, and ultimately not hoard it, not build himself a castle around it, not make a city walls and says, no one gets in just for me and my own kind, but to take that blessing where heaven is touching earth, where God rests comes to rest on that seventh day and inhabit it. It's meant for Adam then to push, push, the, the, push heaven, fill the rest of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. doesn't just mean make babies. It, 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 it includes that, but it's to, to multiply the blessing, the functioning Eden world, and push it onto the rest of the world with God's wisdom with God as king, sovereign king. Adam and Eve weren't king and queen. God was king. They were priests. You have to see Adam and Eve as priests in the garden, trying to push the blessing forward. But what happens if they disobey and they're disconnected from that garden? Then who can push out the blessing of heaven to fill the rest of the earth? And so our Bibles are about God trying to bring, listen, are about bringing man back into that sacred place so that then the earth could be filled as we use the wisdom of God. As we as image bearers, bearers work and, 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 and have responsibility and, and, and fill the, work, the, the world with it so it can function according to God's plan. And so the story that we have is that we never see it come to pass. We never see it come to pass. I always wondered what would have happened if Adam and Eve did not disobey God and they honored God. What would the rest of the Bible look like? I don't even think we can imagine that they stood image bearers and then their children were also image bearers. But that's not how the narrative goes. By Genesis chapter 4, we see their son, one son kills another son. This is not God's plan. This is not them being images of God, their creator. And so what we have is just a decline of humanity. And when, look at, when you have a decline of humanity, you see a decline of the world. The world itself, creation, suffers 
Because man has lost his image. Because why? Man who's made in the image of God was meant to care for the garden so that the garden could stay alive and cultivate the garden, tend to the garden. It wasn't a vacation, kick your feet back up. Sure, I'm sure they had a day where they just stood around and said, wow, this place is beautiful. But eventually they had to wake up as the image of God and work and care for the garden. Ultimately, to expand it past Eden into the rest of the world. But this is not what happens. Man loses his image, and therefore, the all of creation suffers. We don't just have problems within our hearts. We do. And, we, and, and human beings, history teaches us that we kill each other, we step on top of each other, we abuse one another, we enslave one another. If there were no law, the chaos... The chaos that would happen. Oh, there's no consequence for anything, any of what I want to do. For some of us, it's the law that keeps us from doing every evil inclination of our heart. And so some of us don't like it, but trust me, humanity needs law and also needs godly wisdom so that it could experience full life. And so what happens when man is disconnected? All of creation suffers. And so, yes, you and I, we have problems here, but the, world, the, the actual planet has suffered and has declined because when we lack the image of God, then we also don't know how to care for his creation. The pollution, right? Things that happen in our world, the catastrophes of history are all mostly because human irresponsibility and exploitation, right? So, if our, the beginning of our Bibles begin with God creating a beautiful world, and the beginning of our Bibles speak about God creating beautiful men and beautiful women, and now man is lost and he's on decay, as a result, the world is lost and on decay. What a tragic story. And its potential we have never witnessed or seen. And so what is God doing? Is God going to sit back and say, I lost? Is God going to sit back and say, man, creation got me? Is God going to sit back and say, oh, Satan, his wickedness? And then you got to throw him in the mix too, right? Like, <laughs> it's not just humans being bad to each other and the physical world suffering. Like, you got spiritual wickedness in high places, you got a, a roaring, you know, an enemy who comes after us like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And ultimately, it's this spiritual evil that exists as well beyond what our physical eyes see that are part of a lot of the influence of the evil that we do and have done to each other. And so is God just going to take it as a loss? Absolutely not. And this is why we have a, a, a scriptures, and this is why we have a beautiful Bible, because it's about God who he's not going to lose. He's not going to lose to that enemy. He's going to defeat that enemy, that spiritual evil, whatever it is, whatever he is, however you want to describe this Satan and his, 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 uh, his army, his kingdom, however you want to describe it, God is going to defeat it one day. It's all going to come to an end. And he will restore all humanity that has lost himself. Thank you. So he's going to defeat his enemy and he's going to restore humanity, but it doesn't end there. 
He has a plan to restore the entire world. And so this is why I titled the sermon, New Creation is Coming. New Creation. When the Bible speaks about heaven, it's not about a place that we float off to when we die. Hopefully, if we, you know, we're good. The Bible speaks about new creation. New creation. And so in Romans, Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. At verse 18, Romans is probably known as one of Paul. Some people would suggest it's Paul's greatest work, written work. When it comes to teaching, instruction, doctrines and theologies that we believe in our Christian faith, a lot of them have, have, have come from just a great written work from, from, uh, from, from the Apostle Paul. I mean, in so much that it's, it's, people have dug into this so much that even Christian faiths have divided trying to understand what this means. And we got different de- denominations just based upon this profound writing. But the book of Romans is 18 chapters long. In the actual manuscripts, there's not chapters and there's not number verses, okay? We have done that, you know, to help us know where things are. This is why I encourage you to read, read the Bible throughout. I promise you the Hebrews were not like, you know, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it didn't exist. They had a story, and they knew the story. And so some of us are really good at memorizing verses, but we have no idea what the story is about. That's not how the Bible was ever meant to be written. (laughs) We just have a devotion of promises spoken by God with our favorite verses, and we have them printed out all over our home, and that's what you believe about God. I call that twister theology. Well, you take this verse and you take that verse. You remember that game Twister? Right hand on red, left hand on yellow, you know, right foot on green. Eventually, you stretching yourself, just calling out random colors, will eventually you, you crumble. That's the point of the game. And then we laugh at everyone when they fall. Well, this happens to us too spiritually when we're like right hood on Matthew chapter 18, verse 2, and then left foot on, you know, and then we don't know the whole picture. We just start mixed verses. And next thing you know, they, they don't work. They don't work together that way. And next thing you know, your faith has crumbled because why? Your belief and your understanding of the scriptures are twister. Don't do that. Just read. And so rather than us just saying, you know, in Romans chapter 8, verses, whatever, more so see the, the, the book of Romans as a full letter that was written. And then dead smack in the middle, there's something that hinges it all together. And so when we get to Romans chapter 8, verse this, it's right in the middle of Paul's letter. And it's almost like a climax to everything that he's teaching about them and them understanding that they're, they have new life in the spirit and, 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 and that they have been born again and they're no longer slaves and in bondage to sin. And right in the middle, what holds it all together are these verses that many of us just kind of, I remember reading this and be like, I don't even understand what that means. Just continue. And I'll get down to the bottom and I'm like, oh, I know, I like the verses at the end of this and then those were going to go on my fridge. But these I remember just going over because I didn't understand them before. But it says in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed where? In us. And so what is he talking about? He says, I consider that our present, what they're suffering with now, we can make a relation to this. This is a good, what you, you can take what he wrote to the Romans and you can apply it to yourself. That's not bad to do right here. He's talking to them, and in context, he goes, I consider that our present sufferings, you and I, we have present-day sufferings, but what was true for them as he was writing is true for us today. He says they are not 
worth even being compared with the glory that will be revealed, not just to us, but in us. Something glorious is going to happen to us. And so presently in this lifetime, he's telling them, I know that you're suffering. Your lives, your bodies, your humanity is experiencing suffering. But then he tells them that there's something in the future, a future glory that will so outweigh a present day suffering. And that is true for us today. Somebody say amen. You say amen. That's good. That's good. But then look what he says. He goes, for the creation. Now he's not just talking about you and I. For the creation. What creation? Well, the creation of our world. Creation itself. He goes, look, for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Oh. So God is going to do something glorious in you and I in the future that outweighs our present day suffering. But not only does God care about you to bring you and I into something glorious, Paul says what you also need to understand that as you have sufferings today, so does creation. And you and I are waiting for a day for God to bring us into something glorious. God, Paul is telling them, well, guess what? Creation itself is also waiting for a day when God does something glorious in us because us coming into glory and God doing something in us is going to make a way for creation to finally also reach its potential. It is beautiful. And it's sad how much we do not care about creation around us. It's, absolutely, it's sad how we treat the creation that God himself created. We build up our kingdoms and our cities so much that sometimes you go outside, you can't even see creation. You just see, we just see what we've built. And the hand of God is in a backdrop. Like, you got to plan a vacation to go somewhere far, far away so that you can go see God's creation because what's in front of us is our own. And throughout history, creation itself is suffering. But how powerful is this? Paul says, oh, I know you're waiting for a glorious day for God to do something in you, but also know that creation is waiting for that day where God does something glorious in you so that we can help bring creation to its full potential. So you're waiting for it, and all of creation is waiting to look. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So the question is, where did the children of God go? We lost our image. Adam and Eve lost their image, and therefore creation suffered. And so right now, as you and I are waiting for things to get better, you better believe all of creation is waiting too. And they're waiting on us to be revealed. Look at this, verse 20. For creation was subjected to frustration. It wasn't creation's fault. It wasn't creation's own doing. It suffered. Look, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But look at this. In hope 
that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So just as when man fell and he was separated from God and we're on this path of decay and death, the same thing happened. Creation lost its priest to care for, to tend, to bring and produce more life. Creation lost. Creation lost its priest. And so as you and I wait to be redeemed, creation is waiting for us to be redeemed too. So that creation together with man can live out God's plan. Most of us, we never think about this stuff. I'm going to church to hear how God going to bless me. Right here, right now. And God, I need a job and I need a car. And I'm not saying you don't need any of those things. But how shallow if all, like Paul said to the Corinthians, how pitiful would it be if all of our hope in Jesus Christ is for just this lifetime? Not even thinking that while you're worried about your car and you're worried about some of these little things, that creation is waiting on us to be revealed as children of God. Talk about responsibility. Oh, you... I used to think I was just going to go to heaven and live on a cloud and fly around and not worry about nobody and just celebrate who made it. Too bad for those who did it. And then I have, you know, my twister theology to help me, like, not even feel bad. Like, well, the Bible says here in this verse that there ain't going to be no suffering and no more tears. So that means if you didn't make it, I ain't going to think of you. Right? Just put, just put my verses together and help me. <laughs> so you mean to tell me that all of creation is waiting for you and I to be revealed as the children of God? Tell me that does not sound like so much more to be experienced when that day finally comes. I want to suggest that we can't even fathom what that actually truly is. But it's probably so much more greater than our shallow thinking that when I die, I'm just going to float off into heaven one day. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself, look, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And some of you are like, no, pastor, that's just too much. Like, don't the Bible say, like, why are you talking to me about the planet and the world waiting on me? Because, like, I'm not from this world. The Bible says it. I'm not of this world. Right? So you grab that verse. I'm not of this world. And they say, oh, I got another one that's on my fridge, and I'm a citizen of heaven. I don't belong here anyway. I know the verse about us being citizens in heaven, of heaven. It's Philippians chapter 3. Let's, let's read it. It's beautiful. So now Paul writes this letter to the church of Philippi. Now Paul, in the book of Acts, you can see when he went and he preached the gospel, and he, and he, went, to, he went to Greece Corinth was a city in southern Greece, and Philippi was just northern Greece, so 
Paul, together with other disciples, went and they, they preached the good news and, this, and, 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 and people believed. This is how the church of Corinth became a church. They hear the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and so they believe. And so it's only right for him to help them in their understanding about resurrection. And we'll get back to that. It'll come back together. Remember what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church first. Our bodies will resurrect. Like God's going to do something with your physical body. Because why? In their minds, they thought the body was... It's, con- it's so condemned that if there is any afterlife, it has to be a spiritual you, not a flesh you. Because the flesh is too evil. And he's like, no, I want you to know that when Jesus got out the grave, he was, his body came out. But he's just the first of the rest of us. So hold that thought. So now he writes to the church of Philippi. And let's read this verse. Paul tells them, our citizenship is what? In heaven. Be like, see, pastor, I told you, I'm going to heaven. And he goes on to say, and we eagerly await a savior from there. Just look at that language too. We're waiting for the savior who's from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, look what he tells the church of Philippians, will transform, excuse me, our lowly bodies, yes, our bodies that are right now, lowly, humble, also frail, weak, who are also on decay, he's going to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like what? His glorious spirit? His glorious soul? No. He'll take our lowly, weak bodies, and he's going to transform them so that they will be like his glorious body. And so what does he mean when he says but our, citizen, our citizenship is in heaven. A lot of us have taken this passage to read. So see, Jesus is going to come. We're awaiting our Savior, right? We're awaiting our Savior from where? From there, from where? There, heaven. And he's going to come, and he's going to grab us, and he's just going to take us to heaven with him. And this is the plan that God has for, for us, that Jesus is going to come from heaven, and he's going to grab us, and then he's going to take us there. That's what it means, that we're a citizen of heaven. That's actually not what Paul is saying to the church of Philippi. And this is actually brilliant that Paul actually uses this language to the church of Philippi. Why? Because the letter written to the Philippians is actually addressed to Roman retired soldiers who have their citizenship from Rome, but actually live in Philippi. And so in Philippi was a Roman colony, not just of soldiers, but eventually their family. And so they now are inhabitants in Greece, but their citizenship is from where? From Rome. So either they are native born to Rome or their parents was native born to Rome. And eventually they end up where? in Greece, but their citizenship is from where? Rome. Why are they there? 
Well, during this time, by the time Paul is writing to the church of Philippians, and when he came and he preached the gospel to them, they fell in love with Paul. They were supporters of his ministry. They were looking out for him. He loved them too. And so even in this letter, when you read this letter, it's not a very long letter, but Paul is writing to them in his suffering, and he's trying to encourage them by his Like, while they're in their suffering, he's trying to encourage them through his suffering. So he says, even though I'm here in chains, the gospel message is still preached. He repeats to them throughout his letter for them to have joy and to still see God in the midst of their suffering. And that, you know, he's encouraging them to, you know, to to live his to be, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain, and he's also telling them, you, you have to know how to abase, you have to know how to abound, but in all things, you have to be content, and so he's trying to help them through their suffering by, by them seeing his suffering, but him still having his faith, and so they're Roman citizens living in Philippi, and he tells them, our citizens, citizenship is in heaven. Well, why are they there? Well, by this point, there were prior wars that Rome had had, and so eventually soldiers retired, and so they, they were moved over into Philippi, and they started colonies. One, uh, Rome was overcrowded at the time, and also was under-resourced when it came to food and water. And so you had those issues as well where it's like Rome is already busting at the seams. They're already having some struggles as a people. And so eventually Roman soldiers were able to settle and they started colony over in different places. It wasn't just Philippi. And this was normal for kingdoms to do this. When a king wanted to expand, when a kingdom wanted to take on more territory, the purpose wasn't to go out, conquer, and bring everyone back into your castle, into your kingdom. Physically, that, that's impossible. You can't fill up a space too much, and it doesn't function that way. And so part of kingdoms expanding and part of kingdoms growing was to colonize, was to take your citizens, check this out, take your citizen, citizens and place them in other places, and the purpose of them being there is to do what? Is to, for them to take Rome and bring it to Philippi. It's to take the ideology, to take the culture, to take the community, to take the civilization, how do you say that word? That word, and bring it to another place. Thank you. Right, bring it to another place. The goal, listen, was never for those soldiers to go back home because that's where they belonged. It was their identity and their citizenship is from Rome, but to take it and spread it there in Greece. So when Paul says, your citizenship. <laughs> citizenship. There we go. So when Paul says that, look, it's from heaven. What he's saying is, Your identity comes from heaven, and God has placed you on earth. And the goal is not for you to one day go back to heaven, but it's for you to bring heaven there to earth. And he says that to the Romans because they understand the reason why they are there is to bring Rome into Philippi. And so he says, our citizenship is in heaven. So stop waiting for the day 
for God to get you out of here and start praying for the day, start waking up in the day as Jesus taught his disciples to pray and pray that heaven, the will that's in heaven, be done on earth. Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven because you are a citizen from heaven. The goal is not to escape from here because he's going to blow it up, which there will be fire. And there will be. This is what the book of Revelation is about. We see a lot of fire and we see, but the book of Revelation, just, just to help us, is that the scriptures, the, the, the ancient scriptures for the Hebrews talked about Yahweh coming and making all things right. All the injustices that we see today and all of the injustices throughout all of history, some of it, it breaks your heart, right? For, 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 for many of us, certain things just... Oh, we feel that more. We say, this is such an injustice. And this is why it's so good that we move and we advocate and we become a voice for when we see the injustices done to humanity. And it's also good that we move when we see the injustices that, that creation suffers by because of us exploiting the beautiful world that God gave us. And so it's good when we move, right? But sometimes there are things that's like, man, but there's just nothing I can do about this, right? How many things happen in our world and to people and we're like, we just, I just, we just can't do anything about. And it kind of feels like the wicked people who are inflicting the harm over creation and to the human, uh, the, the rest of, of people, it was like, man, they're just going unpunished and they're just getting away with it. Well, the book of Revelation is to show us that the guilty will not go unpunished. Whether they get caught in this lifetime, there's another. Resurrection, this is profound. Resurrection will happen for all of us. Every human being will experience a resurrection and then be judged. Resurrection is not just for the believer. Humanity will resurrect and then God will judge and separate Okay? And so the book of Revelation is about, yes, in the end, God, Jesus is going to return. And he's going to do justice, bring justice to this world. And not just humanity is going to, you know, uh, he's not just bringing justice to humanity, but even that, 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 that spiritual wickedness, that force, that serpent, that devil, whatever you want to describe him as. In Revelation chapter 20, you're going to see justice be brought to him. And spiritual wickedness alongside him is going to get their due justice from God. The justice of God is also to reveal that God is loving and he's not just going to let people do whatever they want to do. And for many of us, it's like, oh, this is good news. This, we could think of a list of some people that, so this person has it coming. God get them. <laughs> and it is good news, but we also have to know that God is going to judge all of us. And we're all going to have a moment before God, so to say. And we're going to have a nice conversation. Because God is not going to let, he's going to hold humanity accountable. But in the end, he's not coming to blow up all of creation. 
He's not coming to blow you to smithereens. He's not coming to blow the planet to smithereens and say, I'm just, and move on. No, he's coming. The Bible's going to show us. Revelation shows us that he's, he's coming. The king, Jesus from heaven, is coming down this way. He's coming down with heaven as an ultimate plan of redemption for all things. And this is not the end. It's really just the beginning. Revelation chapter 21. And this has been key throughout the series because, you know, it's like, man, this is hard, Pastor. I just grew up thinking I just want to die and go to heaven. This is too much. (laughs) This is too much, Pastor. It's not about it being too much. It's about it being the beautiful, true plan that God has. Revelation 21. Now, the Apostle John is having a great vision. God reveals the vision of God bringing ultimate justice to the world. But look what he sees. Then I saw, look, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. When you read this, What's also awesome to know is that John's not just seen this out of nowhere. Some might say, you know, what did he eat before bed last night? He had a crazy revelation. You know, did he have Chipotle the night before? Like, he a little messed up. He's seen all this weird stuff. But what, what John is seeing here is something that God revealed to the prophets nearly 700 years ago. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 65, he sees a vision. He literally sees a new heaven and a new earth. And he sees the grace of God coming and unifying those together in beautiful splendor with all of creation. This is what the prophets saw when they saw of God's ultimate plan, Yahweh's ultimate plan of redemption. It was always in God's heart to renew And so what does that mean? Is the old heaven kicked out? Is the new earth kicked out? More than it just being new, like a brand new pair of shoes, it's about being renewed. And some people say, well, why does heaven need to be renewed? Well, that's a good discussion, not necessarily one we're going to have, but there's different opinions why. But the same way how there was rebellion on earth, right, in humanity, and, 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 and we're subject to death, and now the earth is experiencing this decay, well, we also know that there was a rebellion in heaven too, in, in this dimension of heaven or the heavenlies or the spiritual world, there, there, there was rebellion there too. So I'm not going to act like I know all that that means, but what it does imply is that it's going to be made new, that God is doing something to purify the heavens and that spiritual re- realm of reality where God exists, that will be made new, renewed, and look, the earth will be made new. And as we continue to read, it says, I saw, look, the holy city, again, new Jerusalem, coming down from where? From heaven. From who? From God. Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And so what does he see? There's a picture of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city that, look, house, the temple, the temple of God was in Jerusalem, and that's where his presence rested. And so the people would come to the temple to experience the presence of God, and so the presence of God flowed from the temple out. It's the same picture of Eden. Adam and Eve, as priests, supposed to flow heaven out. But what does John see? He sees the new heaven, he sees the new earth, and then he sees the holy city of Jerusalem coming down to earth. It's like heaven is falling out of the sky. Verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is where? Now among the people. How beautiful. God's dwelling place is where? Among the people. But this makes sense. This is consistent with all of Scripture. Eden was the place where God made his resting place. The tabernacle of Moses is where God made his resting place. Solomon's temple is where God made his resting place. Jesus, his body, his being is where God made his resting place. Today, you and I, as we receive God and we receive his spirit, God dwells on the inside of us and God has made us his resting place. And so in the end, what God is going to do, he's going to bring Jerusalem down, the place that what housed the temple, and then God is going to do what to all of the earth? He's going to make the earth his resting place, not some of the earth, not a temple over there, not just a church over there, not in this person, not about all of heaven is going to come and it's going to fill earth and God's final plan. Like now you and I, we have to press so hard to experience God. Let's be real, right? You got to fast for three days. You got to get in the spirit. You got to get into a prayer closet. You can't be around that person. You got to be around this person. You can't go to that church because you don't like that church and they got a funky spirit over there. So you got to try to find the right. All of this in search of trying to find the presence of God. Sometimes you got to pray longer. It's like I wanted God from the beginning, but it took me 20 minutes to get there. And for most of us, heaven or this place of God's presence seems so far. And depending what group you hang out with, you know God's not there. And so you got to find the right group of people so you can experience God. Sometimes you read the Bible, some verses don't make sense to you. And now you're just searching. Like, I read the Bible and I still didn't feel God. Then you had to read something you understand. And then you found them. But in this new creation... You're not going to have to pick out people to find the presence of God. You're not going to have to find uh, this church or that church or this group or that group or this word of God or that word of God. In the new creation, it will all be God everywhere. His presence will rest everywhere. Why? Because heaven is coming down to fill earth entirely. Oh, that does make sense. That does make sense. Why? Because... How the Bible begins was that Adam and Eve were supposed to be the priests who were supposed to fill the entire world. They were supposed to take that blessing, that presence in Eden and fill the entire earth, but humanity couldn't do it, so God did it himself. And look at this. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from, their, tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. 
the old systems, everything. Death itself is even thrown into the lake of fire in, Genesis, in Revelation chapter 20. And look at verse 22. This is so awesome. I'll get ready to close now. So J- Jerusalem comes down. Check this out. The city of Jerusalem comes down. And so you would have to picture, you need some context to picture, but Jerusalem was a city that had walls. All cities, cities that are going to last, you need walls. This is how, they didn't have Google Maps with a marker line that defined their city. Like, bro, someone's going to come in and take your house. You don't want them to take your house, you got to build a wall. You want to be a great city, get higher walls, thicker walls. And the, the larger your walls, the more secure your city was. So even Jerusalem, God's people, had their walls. They had their city. But at the center, in those walls, is where the temple was supposed to be. So John sees the city. Can you just picture this, like, this vision? Like you're looking up and coming down or coming into your reality is this new Jerusalem, and you're seeing what? You're seeing the city walls. So what should you expect to see if you could get through the gates of the city? What should be in there? You should see the temple where God's presence is. But when we keep on reading, it says this. He says, I did not see a temple in verse 22. You didn't? Where's the temple? He goes, I did not see a temple in the city. Look, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus is the temple. This is what Jesus was saying the whole time. He said, you destroyed this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the temple of Jerusalem. He's like, not that. God's presence not even in there no more. Talking about this. So who's the temple? The Lord Almighty and the Lamb himself. From the beginning, it was always about God himself being his own presence. More than about being a physical place, it was about God's presence itself being the place where we meet him. And so in all reality today, it's really not meant supposed to be about finding the right church, finding the right... It's really about finding God and you enter into this temple. Jesus becomes the temple. He's the door. He's the gate by which we get to access God. There was no temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Look, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring splendor to it. What a beautiful picture. But now look at this. That's Revelation 21 at the end. There's a Revelation 22, and you got to read it. Just a couple of verses. Verse 1, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me, look at this, the river of the water of life. Ah, that's nice. As clear as crystal flowing from where? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 2. Down the middle of the great street of, that, of the city, look, on each side of the river stood what? Stood what? Wait a minute. You mean the tree of life is still out there somewhere? Oh, it absolutely is. When's the last time we saw the tree of life? It was in that garden. 
It's when God created humanity and he placed them in that beautiful garden. In the middle of the garden was this beautiful tree of life, of what? Eternal life. And there was a river. There was a river coming out of the garden. You remember that? And it flowed out and it became these four beautiful rivers that then brought life to the rest of creation around it. But we also know, look at this, in the garden, in the middle, there was the tree of life, this tree of eternal life, beautiful. But then there was also a tree right across from it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you had one tree that if man ate from, eternal life. And you had another tree that if he ate from, we see what we saw, what happened, eternal condemnation, ultimately death. But now in the new heavens and in the new earth, there are two trees. Just the beautiful thing here. Look how God has secured humanity. In the Garden of Eden, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the new creation, tree of life, and your other option is just the tree of life. So if you can't even think to be bad. There's no option for you to be a knucklehead up in heaven. God has taken care of everything that brought us into sin. The book of James says that every man is enticed with his, he, every man, how death, how sin comes to being in our lives, your, your, your inner lust and your enticed from the outside. And so in Christ, in our resurrection, you're a new creation. So you don't have your inner lust in heaven. And the, the enticer, the tempter, the Satan, he's in the lake of fire. So now inside temptation is gone, external temptation is gone, and then there in the garden, all your options are just life and life and life. Look, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are from the healings of the nations. So you get to eat from this tree. Adam and Eve were taken out so that they wouldn't eat from it because they were in a state of death. And if they would have ate from the tree of life back then, they would have eternally have lived in that state of death. And so God getting them out of the garden was his act of mercy on them so that what? He can then work on restoring humanity, work on restoring creation, and then allowing us to eat from the tree eventually. So you and I will get to eat from this very tree of life. It's for the healing of the nations. Verse 12 says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go, look, through the gates and into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So now we go back to Paul saying, don't think that you're going to resurrect as Casper the saved ghost one day. If heaven, all the beauty of heaven is coming into reality here on earth and the physical is united with the spiritual 
then it makes sense that when we resurrect, our bodies come with us. Because it's your physical body with your renewed spirit as a new creation that God is going to entrust us with all of creation yet again. And heaven is going to touch the beautiful earth. You and I and those that have trusted in Jesus will be led into the city. And then for all of eternity, God is entrusting us with creation and his beautiful world. Can you imagine what that is? I have no idea. And so Revelation isn't the end of the world. Revelation isn't, heaven's not the end. It's just the beginning. And so this is the hope that we have when we come to faith in Christ Jesus. So this is why we can't, oh, Resurrection Sunday. Great job, God. You got that guy up out the tomb. Resurrection Sunday was about Jesus being the first fruit of all of us who will resurrect to into that new reality of where heaven is united on earth and the rest is for us to live out last verse 2 Timothy 2 here is a trustworthy saying if we died with him we will also live with him if we endure pay attention we will also reign with him as a kingdom of priests. You thought you were going on vacation when you got to heaven. There's responsibility to reign. And so it's life all over again. Without the sin, without the death, we cannot even imagine what it'll be. And so when it comes to us trusting in Jesus and us knowing that Christ died to forgive us of our sins, that's just the beginning of a glorious hope. God is going to redeem us. He's going to wash our sins. He's going to cleanse you and I. And this is the grace of God. But it's all to bring us back to that original plan that he had in the garden. For man and woman to be a kingdom of priests and to fill the earth with his wisdom and with his beauty. And this is what we look forward to. All evil will be taken care of, all wickedness will be judged and by faith and our faith in Jesus allows us to enter into the beauty of this new creation and this is, a, this is Christ dying is an invitation to all of us for all of that this world will continue to exist just beautifully as God designed it and for later you and I to reign with God and make it even more and as I said, our minds can't even, I can't even fathom. But it's the hope that we have. And for all that have died, our loved ones, those who have died trusting in God, there's a resurrection. And if, let's say, Christ is returned to earth when all of this happens is in 100 years from now and then you and I are gone, then we will sleep too. We'll sleep like our brothers and our sisters and our parents and our children and our loved ones and our friends. But there's a promise that we will all resurrect into this new life. And God will not be defeated, and his original plan will come to pass. Amen? So when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, 
just remember all of that. <laughs> when you see someone later on in the street saying, Resurrection Sunday, yeah, Christ is risen. Tell them, do you know why and for what? And then you drag them through the Garden of Eden, you take them through Rome, and then you take them to Corinth, and then you take them to Philippi, and then you bring them a revelation, and then, you end, then we land in paradise again. <laughs> but what an invitation. So at this moment, I want to end in prayer. And I want to invite a person who feels far from God, so lost from God. Like, maybe you're here in church because it's like, oh, you know, I just got to go. You know, it's the right thing to do to be here. You know, I got to give my acknowledgement. And I'm glad that you did that. But it's more than us just celebrating resurrection because God did something great to Jesus. Today, God wants you to know that what he did with Jesus, he's going to do with all of creation and all of us and to give you right to the tree of life, to live forever and to reign with him. And so we have Christ for this lifetime and we need him for this lifetime, but we're not going to be pitiful and only think that it's about now. <laughs> Look at how much is ahead of us. And there's an invitation for you to be a partaker of that tree of life. Amen. So let's close our eyes and let me, let's pray. I don't want to put on any awkward pressure on anyone, force you to come up here, force you to stand on the count of 10, and then we take pictures and then we put you on our social media and then forget about you tomorrow. Today, I'm just going to invite you to open up your heart. You have heard the message. This is the message that Paul believed. This is the message that the church believed. They understood new creation. And Paul was trying to teach, no, your body is going to resurrect. And it's going to be glorious like his. Remember Jesus when he resurrected? He still had the wounds. There was no pain. But he was able to show them, this is my body. And he asked them for some food and they gave him fish and homeboy ate. And so his body was earthly, but it was also divine. And that's what God wants to do with all of us. So if today, I'm just going to invite you to trust this gospel message. How, how, how does it happen? You believe in it. You believe that he died for your sin and you say, God, I, I repent of my sin. Forgive me for my sin. I've been so far and I want to I draw near to you as I hear you drawing near to me. And so God is here with you. He wants to save you. Save you from what? From this eternal separation where the dogs are at on the outside he wants to bring you into the gates and for those of us that feel life is terrible now there's a hope of a beautiful life in God later we don't just live for today we live for the future hope of what God has and it's not about escaping this world new creation doesn't start later it starts right now. In Christ, there is eternal life right now. And all that is later on is just a transition into the full reality of what God wants to do. We're not saved later. We're saved today. We don't just have hope later. We have hope even right now because God is so gracious and he wants to make his love and his presence known to you. So yes, you can pray about the concerns of your life now. He's a present God today with a great and glorious hope for later. So God, here we are. Father, we all turn our hearts to you and we all tell you that we need you, Lord. 
Father, today I believe that today is a day of salvation, Lord. This message is for all of us, Lord. It doesn't matter we were here on the first week, but we're here now, Lord. May we hear the gospel message that you died for our sin, but that you rose up in power gracing us with the gift of your spirit, Lord, that now lives on the inside of us, Lord. And this is an invitation, Lord, for you do not wish that anyone will perish, Lord, but come to you and enter into your presence, Lord. You are the temple. Your son is the temple, is the sacred place, Lord, where you rest and where you dwell. So, Father, we give our hearts. We step forward. Father, we walk into, Lord God, we enter into your presence by believing. This is not of works, Lord. None of us can boast, but it's by faith and in belief in you, Lord. So, Father, today I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, for the salvation, for the eternal life that is available to us today, Lord. Father, I pray that you will all fill us, Lord, with your spirit so that we can bring heaven to earth even now, Lord. Even now, Lord in our lives, in our homes, with our children, with our marriages, with our friendships, Lord, with our family, with our community, Lord, at our workplaces, in our careers, Lord. May we bring heaven to earth, Lord. Why? Because we have encountered you. So, Father, I thank you and I praise you. And we celebrate any person here today, Lord, that has just had a genuine experience with you because of your word, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the renewal of our mind, Lord, for teaching us, Lord, for your Holy Spirit, bringing into clarity, Lord, your plan. So, Father, I pray that you give us all strength to those that are weary, Lord God. May they find rest, Lord. For those that need uh, wisdom for decisions, Lord, your word tells us to ask, Lord, for wisdom, and you will give it to us. So I also pray for wisdom, Lord, for us. Help us, Lord, to serve one another, Lord. Father, I pray against our pride, Lord God. I pray against our own agendas, Lord, and may we submit ourselves to your will. I pray against the lust that is on the inside of us, Lord. Fill us, Lord God, with your, uh, your fruit of the Spirit, with self-control, Lord God. Help us to think on things that are true, lovely, of good report, Lord God. Help us to fix our minds on you, Lord. So, Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you that you resurrected, Lord, but I know it's just because you are the first of all of us, your children. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you will, we will be revealed as children of God to all of creation. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's also just give a round of applause for anyone here today that... Trusted God today. We thank God for you. And I just pray God's blessing and his peace over you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're going to invite Pastor Daniel to come up uh, with closing announcements. We have a really great announcement coming for next week. And so um, I'm just excited for all that God has in store for us. Amen. God bless you. Happy Resurrection Sunday.